that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. Hey there, paisani, ho, 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 and welcome back to the Italian-American Podcast. I'm your host, John Viola, and it is officially Christmas season here in Italian America. We've got some wonderful episodes lined up over the next couple of weeks to celebrate this very important holiday to all of us, one that has so many traditions that are near and dear to the Italian-American experience, all of which culminate in part in the topic that we're here to talk about today, which is everybody's favorite, Feast of the Seven Fishes. So first and foremost, I'm joined by uh, Pat Rosella. Good to see everybody again. Yeah, it's great to be back. What does back mean? Back virtually, you know, like we, I mean, back you are on I, the show, Pat. Back on the show, yes. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, I was thinking today, like we, it almost feels like we've been recording remotely longer than we did in person. I know. It is true. It, it does feel like that. I feel like we haven't recorded together in a long time. That beautiful studio we built with the white checkered tablecloth and all the artifacts and it's just sitting there. I know. We got to get back there. I think it's time. I'm in my wife's extra spare closet, which is basically a storage unit. So I'm relegated <laughs> to a corner with my books and my recording equipment. So yeah, it'd be nice to get back. But we got special guests with us today that I'm really looking forward to speaking to. They are the production team, writer, producer, directors, creators, and brothers, Italian-American brothers, behind what I think, I could be wrong, is really the first Italian-American Christmas movie, the first, at least, that I've seen that really takes the Christmas movie from our perspective. They come to us from West Virginia. So welcome to the Italian American podcast, Jeff and Robert Tanell. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Appreciate you having us. Thank you. I actually want to ask you guys before we get into it. So wait, are you guys Italian or Italian American? We're Italian American. Our mother was an, uh, was an Oliverio, which is a very, very, very common name in North Central West Virginia. And do you guys know Adriana Trajani at all? No. No. Because she, she, I believe, spent some time living there, and you're probably around the same age, and it's just, uh, that's so interesting that you don't know each other, because she wrote and uh, directed the, the film Big Stone Gap, that I believe was set in the same exact place. That's down no, that's, that's down, down south. That's actually. Oh, in oh, 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 oh. But I am aware of. That I know that project. movie. Now yeah. you said that. I know the movie. Big, yeah, Big Stone Gap. No, I don't. I don't know her. And you know, the, the thing is, is well, Jeff doesn't really live here. I came back from LA several years ago, but like my life is still pretty much like a Los Angeles Hollywood life, as opposed to God, that came out wrong and creepy. <laughs> we can always edit. Don't worry. We, no, that's kind of cool. I, why would you want to edit that out? That's like the, that doesn't look good. Keep that in, John. I, you know, I got the Hollywood. Cr- I mean, that makes us look good. The spotlight's kind of deflecting on us. That's not a bad thing. But you know, I I love where we grew up. I wanted to live here. I wanted to raise my kids here, and uh, I came home many many years ago because I was just working a lot in Montreal, and it just worked out. 
And, uh, and then to go back when you sit, it's it's funny, like you bring up the, the film Big Stone Gap and a lot of stuff. We've done a, three movies in West Virginia. But the interesting part from the Italian angle is we're about an hour south of Pittsburgh where we're at. And it's so many people think West Virginia is the Hatfields and McCoys, and that's part of the state. And, you know, we have hillbillies and we have that kind of stuff going on. But you have a very ethnic route, like, like you know, the deer hunter was shot in West Virginia, or a large part of it was up in Weird. So there's a there's a lot of Italian folks here, a lot more than, because uh, we've had that conversation with people before. There's no Italians there. It's like, oh, okay, tell my mom and all. Clarksburg. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Italian festival. Clarksburg, San Giovanni in Fiore. The greatest gift that I got from NIAF was learning how not Italian, how Calabrese that part of West Virginia is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody, our whole, our whole family's from San Diego. Yeah, Joe Manchin, who's a U.S. senator, he, you know, that's right. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, you just start with a guy like that. So, you, yeah, you go through a whole list. Because I feel part of this podcast is to proclaim to the world all the unknown Italian American parts of the country. Because I come from the epicenter of Soprano Land in New Jersey, and we don't have to, we're known for that de facto, whether, whether how accurate it is today as it was 20 years ago or not. But Sugarland, Texas, there's so many parts of the country where there are huge Italian communities in places where you would never think they were. Yep. Omaha, Nebraska, and, and they're just kind of looked over. But no one knows about Clarksburg, West Virginia. I'm going to tell you a story about Clarksburg, West Virginia. I was with a group of Italian political people from Umbria. They run a medieval festival. And we went with them to, to visit Colonial Williamsburg because they wanted to see how Colonial Williamsburg functioned try to bring some of that technology back to their uh, medieval festival in Umbria. And we are at the, I guess, the official, whatever the main hotel is in Colonial Williamsburg. Probably the Williamsburg, Williamsburg Inn. Inn. Yeah. I went to school in Williamsburg. I know it very well. Yeah, the Williamsburg Inn. And there's a girl with the most Medigon name in the world behind the counter. She must have been 22 years old. <laughs> and the Italians are talking amongst themselves, counting. And she responded, like, whatever number they said, she gave them the answer in English. And my mantra, I was like, you understand Italian? And she got a little bit bashful. And she says, yeah, I took Italian in school. My grandparents are Italian. She was from Clarksburg. <laughs> and I said to her, you must be from San Giovanni in Fiore. And she kind of lit up. And I was like, that is the unknown gem of West Virginia. People should come and visit. Because I have a theory that if you go from Cleveland all the way down into West Virginia and back into Pennsylvania, that's like the real Italian triangle America. So I just want to say a lot of America is ignorant of Italian West Virginia, but there is one man on this podcast who is not. And he is <laughs> You know what's really funny? Every single step of this process from the time that I got the idea has been met with disbelief or outright scorn. And I remember when I first had the idea to do it, I had just sold a movie that's still never been shot. And uh, the, the guy uh, took me out to, to eat. And I, ironically, we had fish, but it was sushi in, in Venice Beach. And he said, what do you want to do next? And I pitched him Feast of the Seven Fishes. And I mean, dude was drinking, but he eventually kind of came around and said, you know, it's a pretty good idea. And I called my then manager and I was all excited. And I was like, this guy's really behind it. And he just went off on me about how stupid I was, that people wanted me to do horror and comic book stuff. And nobody cared about my stupid family cooking fish and blah, 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 blah. You know, he didn't stay my manager long because then the, you know, I went ahead. He, I, I did it as a comic strip. 
because no one would get behind it, uh, put it on the web, and I didn't even know initially that anybody was reading it. It was just sort of for giveaway. And I had a friend here in local radio who said, why don't you come on the show and promote this? And when I did, and he opened it up for calls, the board lit up. And all these people were already reading it or they wanted to talk about it. And by the way, I will say this because I don't want to forget to. It's like, this is so no longer about me and people corner me and they don't want to tell me, oh, I like the movie. I mean, they'll say nice things. They want me to listen to them talk about theirs. <laughs> That's so Italian. That's, <laughs> That's when you know you're with the tribe. Yeah, you're, <laughs> yeah your movie's yeah. nice. But let me tell you how my mother used to make the bacala. Yeah, we get that. 100%. But it went all the way through. You know, I was doing a bunch of comic books. And my publisher didn't want to do the book. So Jeff and I formed Allegheny and we put out the book. And then it was got the Eisner nomination, which it shouldn't have done. You know, it's every single thing it wasn't supposed to do. And um, it, here, I'll give you the ironic upshot of all of this was when we, we spent many years trying to get the film made and because all the movies I directed and stuff were like with kids or all my projects were horror related, no one would bet on us for the longest time. And ironically, now that it's out, I was talking to someone about a horror project that I had written and, and the guy says to me, but you know, bro, you can't direct this because you do rom-coms, you do romantic comedies. Like I can't win. <laughs> There's no logic to this. It's interesting when you have a passion piece, a story that you want to tell that is based in, in your life and, you know, something like the Feast of the Seven Fish, right? I, I was, I, I actually watched the movie last night with my wife in order to prep for today. And one of the things that really stuck with me was the idea that the first time that Tony actually introduces the whole concept of the Feast of the Seven Fish, he explains very well, doesn't have to be seven, could be 11, got to be an odd number. You know, it's all kind of nicely encapsulated. And, you know, we've done episodes on the tradition and there's never really been a kind of codified understanding. I actually feel like your graphic novel, and for those who are not in tune, a graphic novel is a sort of adult comic strip in book length. Um, I think since that, there started to form, maybe it's where we are in the Italian American experience, sort of a codification around the Feast of the Seven Fishes. You see more reference to it you see more businesses referencing it doing special dinners and restaurants and things like that i feel like we're sort of moving into where the rest of the country is and obviously the graphic novel and the movie are huge tools towards making people aware i feel like the rest of the country is starting to see this tradition as a sort of an american piece now in a lot of ways absolutely and i got i have to say like when i first did the book and you know and i would google things there was nothing about the feast at all yeah. And I got to say this, too, because it's really I think it's important. There, there are a couple of things that I think need put out there, one of which is I love the people who say there's no such thing as Feast of Seven Fishes. It's not really Italian. It's like, OK, so let me get this straight. In an era before we had mass communications, about one and a half million Italians came to America, <laughs> moved all over the country and simultaneously decided to start cooking fish on Christmas Eve. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. I mean, this is the most insane thing. My my wife and I and some friends, we started the Feast of Seven Fishes Festival in my hometown, Fairmont, West Virginia. It's very popular. It's it's just a wonderful event. And we had a guy come once and he wanted to cook, but he goes, you know, I'm from Tuscany and we don't do this. But he didn't disparage it. He just said, that's a Southern thing. You know, instead of, I just, God, people just love to be nasty. <laughs> yes, yeah, but you're, you're, from, you're from a separate nation you're from the two sicilies yes they are not our country the north of, it was a bad marriage 
<laughs> they might get divorced. We were the richest country. It isn't their tradition. They don't have a Christmas Eve tradition. No, they don't. It's a Southern thing. Now, but my wife's Abruzzo's family, they did. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, my wife's Abruzzo's. Abruzzo is the most northern part of the two Sicilies. Abruzzo and Calabria are a million times more in common than Abruzzo and Market. I don't know if I should tell this, but it was just really funny the way only an Italian can say it to another Italian. But uh, I had to talk one gentleman of Sicilian descent uh, into being in the film. He wasn't sure. And... And we talked and talked. He's like, okay, I'm going to do it. He goes, and right before we get off the phone, he goes, wait a minute. I never asked you. Where's your family from? And I'm like, Calabria. And he goes, oh, I'm not doing it. You people are evil. <laughs> I'm, I'm from Sicily, and I'm scared of you people. There's something wrong with us. Let me give you two tweaks about what they're saying and how it correlates into our shared history. Up until 1966, Christmas Eve was a day of fast and abstinence. In the Catholic world and in the Orthodox world, in ancient Christianity, Advent was a time of fasting, and Christmas Eve was the last day of the fast. On a fast day, you could not eat before 3 o'clock because a mass was said at 3 o'clock, and then afterwards, people hadn't eaten all day. They would break the fast, and it would kind of be almost like the Holy Saturday is to Easter. It would be the day before the big meal of Christmas. So they would be eating fish because it was a day of fast and abstinence. The seven number, I do think, is a, an incorrect number, and I, think it is a, 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 and I think we've evolved it into becoming an identity of our Italian-Americans. But if you look at the newspapers from the 1980s, when the Italian-American experience, as John likes to call it the Mario Cuomo years, becomes a little bit more nationally accepted, as Italian-Americans begin to move up in areas of education and, and, and society in general, the newspapers of that era begin to speak to a feast of the seven fishes. I can tell you, I remember having this conversation in the 1980s, must've been like 83, 84, 85, in my house, me, my mother, my grandmother. And the conversation was, somebody had read in like the Jersey Journal, the Oracle newspaper, oh, it's the feast, like the Italian feast of the seven fishes. And we looked around, we stared at each other, like, who, seven, we never did seven. No one ever counted. Somehow in the 80s, that counting, somebody, now the one thing I want to defend it with, there's probably some town in the middle of nowhere in Italy that had a tradition of seven fishes. Some parts of Abruzzo have numbers 13, 9, 7. It wasn't at all uniform in the south of Italy. Someone must have did an interview with somebody. They talked about their family having seven fishes, and then it became all Italian Americans do seven fishes. Because what makes us different as a people, our traditions are so unique from village to village. Absolutely. If you go to a country like Poland, where they have a very strong Christmas Eve tradition, Vigilia, Vigilia, I don't really say it right, or Ukrainians, where they break the fast, of the meatless fast day of Christmas Eve with a big meal. In Poland, from north to south, from east to west, everybody eats um, basically the exact same food. It's the same pierogi. I put a little more farmer's cheese. You put a little bit less. It's the same thing. In Italy, the next village over might as well be China. Might as well be a million miles away. <laughs> they make bakala different than us. That's why we're a completely different race of people. And I have to tell you, one of the things I struggled with, because I know precisely when I first heard it called this was my mother i think it was 1988 or 89 uh they had moved coincidentally not far from colonial williamsburg and i was in from california and we were cooking or we were going to have something you know because we were away from everybody and i said well you know what do we do this way she goes what's the seven fishes now and i remember her you know i remember that moment vividly but you know she could have just as well have read it in a good housekeeping magazine i don't know because for us I, it was just Christmas Eve. Yeah. But when I went to do the movie, 
I was nervous about one, I didn't want to pass up the market, being blunt, I didn't want to pass up the marketing opportunity. And I felt it was enough license that I could get away with it. But, you know, like, I mean, like I said, in our house, I mean, it was, I, I could, it was, the table was just loaded down. I don't know. I don't even know if it was an odd number on my great grandmother's table. I have no idea. I was, I was, I was too busy eating. I really appreciated the fact that you put that in the movie. Like I, like I said, as Tony introduces it to this Medigon white girl, Beth, who, who's, who's the uh, main love interest to our protagonist, for those who haven't seen the film, I love that you, you give that sort of brief codification of what it is in Seven. And frankly, from a perspective of an Italian, a professional Italian-American who spends his life in this community, in this culture, I actually think it's a service to sort of create a brand around it because I do think it has created more exposure, more understanding, more awareness, more curiosity on other people's parts. So that's exactly how I would describe it to somebody outside of my family. I would still call it the Feast of Seven Fishes. My family makes 11 or 13. And like you say, I don't remember how many my grandmother made. She made what she made every year. We went, we ate, we screamed, we fought. We, you know, we were there all night. <laughs> and then when I took over cooking, uh, when my grandfather passed away, I just started making the recipe she taught me. There was more than seven. I knew you had the odd number thing floating around there. So I kind of codified my version of it going forward. But I do like the fact that this Feats of the Seven Fishes has taken on a kind of institutional brand to the rest of the country and the world. And, you know, like you say, Italians from Italy will tell you they don't do it. I like the fact that we have a kind of nice, you know, TM on something that we do that's our own Italian-American culture. I really like that. But let me jump in. Southern Italians do do it, absolutely, to a man. Yeah, but they don't call it the Feast of the Seven Fishes. It doesn't right, have to because be it's, a, it's something we invented. It's an invented – it's like spumoni. Uh, I mean, <laughs> spumoni came from Naples, and then we made it our own. You know, the Italian hot dog in New Jersey. It's, it's, a, it's a phenomenon of our own. But the one thing I think we need to recognize is that – what's the historical accuracy? In San Giovanni and Fiore and in those towns in Calabria in the 1890s and the 1870s and the 1880s, there was no Feast of the Seven Fishes because there was no food. And on uh, Christmas Eve, now remember, you're in interior Calabria. What's going to be your fish? Alij, which is salted anchovies, and bacala, which is salted cod. Because if you catch fresh fish on the coastal parts of Calabria, it's going to take days by a donkey via juch to get to the interior. So on Christmas Eve, you might have had like a spaghetti aioli with anchovies. You might have zapolis. Some parts of the country called fried dough with the anchovies, mm -hmm. and then you would have bacala preserves some way cooked bacala, which you would have to soak for a couple of days to take the salt out. That would have cost you a fortune. The bacala would have been very expensive, and then you probably would have had some kind of fried fritter with with honey. That's all we could afford. But America, we got to America. Not only we could eat bacala, scungil, galamad, stuff they'd only heard of. Remember, there's a lot of people like John. You tell it all the time. There were people in interior Italy. They never saw the ocean until they were coming to America. Yeah. They were coming to America. And before they got on the boat for New York, they said, wow, I finally saw the ocean. Yeah. My father-in-law. Right. So you come to America, you get good, the good union job. And now you could buy all kinds of fish that you never had in Italy. And now you're asking your Neapolitan neighbor, your Bade's neighbor, oh, Marie, I never saw this galamad before. How do you make it? And so by exchanging this stuff, we created Italian-American culture. And then as we got more money, we're buying lobster tails and more lobster tails and crabs and shrimp and 18-course fish meal, would, it was inconceivable. So that was the, that was the American experience of, of everything over the top. But you know what, Pat, I'll say this, and, and I'm, I'm glad, and I, do, I, wanna, I don't want to forget, because I want to say one other thing going back, but I, I do want to say that 
one of the things that I'm most proud of, and not just of like my ancestors, but of our culture, is the improvisational, adaptable nature of these people. I mean, they all became here, everybody became a fisherman, hunter, and a forager. I learned more or as much from my Italian side about how to do all the outdoorsy stuff I love to do as I did from my family that's been here since Jamestown. And I love that. I love that we're going to, okay, I don't, because I, I, I really want to get to a bigger point, but I will say, like, I love this story about my great grandfather who unfortunately died. He didn't die in the mines, he died from the mines in the 40s, but he built a grape arbor out back. And then he took a shovel and he made this mound at one end of the thing. My grandfather's like, I'm like, what is that crazy old man doing? Well, once the grass came in, he had made himself a natural sort of like couch. He could, <laughs> so he could play the guitar, you know? And I love, you know, it's just that. It's like, I'm going to take this and I'm going to make it into this. But I also want to say that, you know, I mean, I was very motivated to preserve this tradition. But one of the things that I think is so important and why I think it's, I think it's so wonderful is that Christmas has gotten, had gotten at least, when I, it was really, I think, sort of peaked back around the time I did the book, so out of control that no one was stopping to enjoy it. The kids weren't doing the church programs anymore. I don't care, Catholic, Protestant, whatever. Uh, people weren't visiting. They weren't caroling. They weren't doing this. They're running to the mall. They're buying, 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 and trying to fit some sort of, I got nothing against her, but like Martha Stewart image of the perfect Christmas instead of the, you know, what I call it, like, you know, it, it, the, the psychotic breakdown that was dinner at our house. And like, you know, what's so fabulous about this isn't what you're making or even if it's authentic, what's important is that you're doing this together and building genuine memories and genuine shared experiences and strengthening family. That to me is the greatest gift that taking on this, this tradition can bring to anybody. Well, let me say, you make that point very well, I think, in the film. And I don't want to give too much of the story away because our audience, I hope, I hope, has either seen it or will see it now. Obviously, it's a beautiful tale of Italian-American family and a non-Italian-American, uh, which I would say Medigan, some people get offended by that, a white girl who gets brought into this uh, family almost accidentally and through a, a love connection to their artist son, Tony, and uh, obviously the, the hilarity that ensues from there. But one of the things that I really appreciated about how you address that, and it actually made me very emotional and nostalgic while I was watching it, because every year since I was 16 and I started cooking, I've been bringing my cousins shopping for fish, all my brothers and cousins. Our generation does the cooking for all of our parents and grandparents, usually upwards of 50 plus people in our house eating all this fish. And I just found out a couple of days ago that because the numbers of COVID are going back up, my grandparents, who are 85 and 83, have decided they don't want to come down from their house in the mountains. And so it's really going to be me, my immediate family, and, you know, need 13 fish for, you know, 12 people or whatever we are with the kids. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, you have, and I'm going to forget which character say it in the film, it's not really about the eating. It's about the preparation work and the time together. And so they invite this young girl Beth to come and uh, three o'clock to be there to prep. And that's really what the holiday is about. And it dawned on me that like, I don't really have many memories of sitting down eating at Christmas <laughs> Eve. You know what I mean? Like I really don't. It's a, it's just moments of stuffing whatever has been made into your, and then 
it's the day before fish shopping and it's the day of and getting up in the morning and it's the soaking of the bacala and you know it's it's a running gag in the film that it's not uh, soaked enough and that's true that's real you know who messed up this thing and and i think you you're right you can call it the feast of seven fishes how many you eat what recipes none of that really matters it's, the eating doesn't even matter it's the multiple day preparation and family time that's so rare and I think you've done a good job of making that clear. That's, I think, something really relatable for me, you know? But I think if I, if I could just jump into, because I always have to give the historical context, a lot is lost on Italy about the American kind of grandiosity that we almost Thanksgiving eyes, Christmas Eve. Because in the south of Italy, you have to remember, Italian-American culture is Southern Italian agrarian farm culture. And the farm culture is, I don't have a lot of money. I can't give you money. I can't give you material things. I can't give you a beautiful gold watch, beautiful silk dress. But I can give you more cheese than you're ever going to be able to eat in your whole life. So we, we, we show our love with food because that's what we had. But if you're a farmer in the South Division in the 1880s, there's nothing to do at the end of December. Because you just finished the, the you maybe have the olive picking. The olives are starting to fall off the trees. Before they picked them in the 1890s, they were still collecting olives as they fell. Maybe around that time in December, you would have olives to collect. Early January, you're going to kill the pig, and that's going to be all the meat preparation of making sausage and everything else in Brazil. But that time at Christmas, you really have nothing to do. So for 12 days, because January 6th is the real holiday in Italy. It is another Christmas. So from, the, from December 25th to January 1st, which was not celebrated as New Year's Day, it was the Feast of the Circumcision, the eighth day after Christmas, the octave. January 6th, Holy Innocent, St. Stephen, all these feasts. People went from house to house, and that's why we have a chestnut tradition. Why do you have a chestnut tradition? Because you'd have lunch in your own house, and then you would go see Z Juan or Z Marie, and you would go over to their house. Again, poor people, what would I I'll give you a glass of wine, uh, I'll roast you some chestnuts, and we'll sit around the fire because it's so cold. The fire is all we have in common to keep us warm. Avrazera, Avrazera was from Roman times up until the 1950s in the south of Italy. It was like a, a copper or an iron little plate that stood on the floor, a brazier that you would put some coals from the fire and you would sit around that. You would put your feet around, your, your feet would be around the brazier as you had a little blanket on your lap. As you sat around the fire, you would eat chestnuts. And maybe if you were in Naples or some areas, you would play tombola, which is kind of like a bingo game. A lot of people paid pochino. And that's how you would kill the night. And in a lot of places in Italy, kids would go from house to house, basically like our, our form of trick-or-treating. On New Year's Day or January 6th, they would go from house to house. They would knock on the door. And they would wish their neighbors a happy, uh, Merry Christmas. And the neighbor would give them a cookie. Ah, uh, here, take a cookie. Everybody went home with a cookie. For kids who were depraved of sugar all year long, that was a big event. Remember, up until the 1950s, in parts of southern Italy, people had meat three times a year. Christmas, Easter, and then your, the feast day of your town. You, why did some people have chicken? Italy, capon is really big at, Chris, at Christmas. Why? Because the chicken that stopped laying eggs um, you would kill them for a soup at Christmas. Um, you would castrate a rooster, and you would fatten him up and have him at Christmas. It was the one time you got a little bit of, of meat. In Italy, they're more used to the 12 days of Christmas. So you're celebrating all 12 days. In our Russian society, we have, okay, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, then back to work the 26th. And that's why we, uh, another reason why I think we have to get it all in on Christmas Eve. I don't know, Pat. I wish you'd come down to the Feast of Seven Fishes Festival in Fairmont next year because you, you would be... Invite me and I will come. I, 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 would I, I just... Would, this stuff is so fascinating. But the, we have the West Virginia Folk Life Center here. Part of it really heavily focuses on Italian-American culture and really 
I mean, there's just such a great tradition with like ghost stories and vampire stories, I mean, all this cool stuff um, that I hope, I hope they're sandboxes we get to go play in again at some point on other projects. Cause it's just so fascinating, but I love, I, I just, it fascinates me to hear these things and to, and I will tell you when we did, and Jeff, we went, where did we first go? We first did the book. We did a book tour and he and I, we traveled what Erie, Cleveland, you know, we Youngstown, Ohio, like, and I would get, we would go in to places to, to sign books and there'd be like, somebody apologized to us once in a Barnes and Noble. And then a few minutes later came back. She goes, there's a line out the door. Cause they'd had a thing on the radio that somebody did a book about this. But what amazed me was when I would particularly go up into Jersey and New York, Long Island places and have book signings. Like uh, what was the one, uh, Chef Central or whatever that was in Paramus? Yes, yeah, 17. That's right where I live. Okay, well, I mean, these people came in. I learned so much. I learned about things we had in common. I learned new recipes that I would come home. I'd tell my wife, we got to try this. You know, it was just astounding. But again, it, it all comes back to that confessional thing. These people want to talk about it. And I, I, not only when I, and I was so nervous because I didn't want people to think that I was some sort of authority. So what I would say whenever I would like have to give a speaking thing and I put it in the book, I'm like, not only does this vary from, you know, village to village or, you know, or house to house, family, you know, house to house. I mean, literally the next door neighbor is doing something totally different than you're doing. The important thing again, is that they're doing it together. Because that togetherness is such a theme for who we are. And, you know, we, we talk about this on the show a lot, right? We are the Italian American podcast, but every Italian American family is a different version. Every person has a different identity, what it means, what are the touchstones of their Italian experience you know, there are Italians in every part of the country, from every part of Italy. Everybody does things differently. So what are the commonalities? And, and, and I always oftentimes feel this weird weight, like you said, this fear in trying to share what I think the commonalities are without being someone who's pontificating, because there is no authoritative decision on what is authentic, right? But I know that I feel safe saying that value of family and togetherness, if not practice, at least the goal of it and the and the appreciation of it is a touchstone that everybody can relate to and i think that's a major theme of the film more than the love story more than the comedy whatever but another one that you guys address in the film that i want to talk about because it comes up on the show a lot is this experience that the, the film is set in 1983 and this young man tony is, is an artist he's very creative he paints and he's working his tail off in this town in West Virginia in his parents' store that was his grandparents' uh, store, I suppose, right? They, they, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, the father says to him one day, this place is going to be yours, you know? And this idea that the family is building a business that is very, very secure, very logical, meets a need in the community and can be passed down. And last year when we started our Christmas episodes, Pat and I interviewed a good friend of his in Hoboken, New Jersey, who's a third generation baker, still running her traditional family Italian bakery. Her parents have passed on and she's kind of the only holdout doing it. And we talk a lot about Italian American businesses that are very financially sound. They're commercially viable. They're in good areas. They have a you know, decent uh, following and, the, and you know, they're, they're healthy businesses and they close because the next generation wants to move on to something else. Did you, purposely bring that dichotomy into the film or was it just sort of a, a setting that you were putting together because yeah, I, I think a lot of like it's funny because in this area there's a lot of brain drain too and um 
now the world has such a it's so interconnected you know you're a little younger when mtv started where you lived places you were probably six eight months behind with things right before mtv started like whether let's use music which is a commonality right you would have or if you had friends in college that were from dc or la or something they were a little hipper they had a little more you know there was more choices there new york city or whatever their choices and i think that commonality changed it but at least in the 80s you had a lot of people i didn't hate where i grew up i went away to school uh i was ready to to leave you wanted to go someplace else you know a little bit of there's nothing ever happens here uh you feel like things are better elsewhere so i, I so i think that happened plus that was about the end of when the steel and especially the coal mining world started to die out. Right. You know, that was, as you said, there was that comfort factor. Uh, that's probably the end of where people worked and they gave you a gold watch when you finished working someplace 25, 30 years. That doesn't happen anymore. There's probably no one on here that's talking said maybe other than us, we've done the same stupid stuff, but to say that we had the same job for 30 years, right. You know, well, I worked here. That it doesn't exist. So I think a little of that, and part of it is 1983 is probably about the last vestige before the digital world really started to pop into our lives with DVDs and CDs and all the stuff that started to kind of explode in the, over the course of the next 10 years. So I think that's part of it. Plus it's also, you know, we're our age in 1983, I was 20. So, so, so there is a bit of that, but uh, there also was a bit of, if you were a person that wanted to go out someplace else, you're not, a, you're, you know, you're leaving family and friends behind, right? And the stuff that you know, and you go out in the world. I remember when I went to Los Angeles in 1983, and it was during the summer, I was in school and worked on a movie. And I remember a woman, uh, her husband was a famous actor. And my job was to pick him up and take him to work every day. And she was very nice. And they were, he'd been on Dr. Kildare. And he's Sam been, Jaffe. He played yeah. Gunga Din and all yeah. these. He was like, you know, he's a famous actor. And she was very nice. We'd talk every day going to work. And then she'd always try to ask me questions. And finally she goes, well, I have to ask you, you know, um, it must have been really hard growing up. And I'm like, no, we had pretty good. Well, but to grow up in Appalachia and not to have running water and electricity. And it's like, (laughs) we had electricity, but, you know, but so if that, and I wasn't even insulted. I was kind of like, what's this person think? Like, yeah, it's like the Beverly Hillbillies. The guy (laughs) the Beverly. And I was like, no, we have electric and running water and doors and, you know, I mean, I, st- I live in Morgantown, West Virginia. I can throw a rock and hit a gourmet wine shop and a sushi bar from the back of but my that house. Was, but, but that wasn't there then. But that wasn't there so, then. But so, that wasn't in Glendale, California so, then so, yeah, Exactly. That's true. I mean, so, so you know, you're ta- you've mentioned a lot about like with regards to food too. Yeah, you're sitting there saying it's like Jeff Edwards and those guys. I mean, his dad, the guy I used to work for, is named Blake Edwards, who directed all the Pink Panther movies. You lived in LA in the sixties and seventies, you went to Chasen's, you had a steak and baked potato. you know, there wasn't a food yeah. kind of thing. And there wasn't that. So the world's a little more limited. So anyway, I digress and I go off. But my point is that uh when it comes to the movie, a lot of it has to do also with the innocence of life at that time. Meaning and I say innocence of you could live in a small town, get a job, you could work there, you could do those things. And that really a lot of it also is this kid wants to get out and do something different with his life. And he has aspirations and dreams. And I, I think that is a pivotal place of the transition of when things started to change. One of you mentioned that, you know, when it went from this eighties where it became seven fishes or it became this, or we started seeing an explosion where people were more open to uh, different types of uh, multiculture, or multiculture, diversity, whatever term you want to use. 
but so I, I think there was some of it's by dumb luck and some of it's by experience in a long-winded way of saying what you you asked. But you know, I, I also think too, and I'm going to mess up the quote, but you know, in a sense, the thing that made this culture so vibrant and successful is also the thing that ultimately leads to its fraying in terms of as a family unit, because I don't remember if it's Jefferson or John Adams or somebody back in the colonial era said this thing where we have to be revolutionaries and soldiers so our children can be doctors and scientists so their children can be poets and artists. I mean, there is sort of a progression that happens here. Yeah. And I do very much think that in that respect, you know, I mean, honestly, Italian Americans have done so much for the culture where we live here. I mean, doctors, lawyers, politicians, community, you know, business leaders. I mean, it, it is profound. You know, if you came here, you'd kind of sort of think that maybe it was Italian first and then other people came. <laughs> yeah. Because that's how dominant it has become. But it also had the fact is that the neighborhood that we lived in when I was in high school, my grandfather couldn't buy a house in that neighborhood because he was Italian. So yeah, it was in the deed. Uh, in know, the you, deed. Our friend Mike Alloy, who's a judge, Italian American judge here, his house, his deed says, you may not sell this house to a, a Jewish person, a black person, or an Italian person. Holy cow. And you know, you had, you had, it, within half a mile, there were two Catholic churches. One was, was, we always used to joke, it was like, you know, white people's Catholic church, and then there was the Italian church. I mean, I split up, like, you know, I mean, and, and, and it was not, I guess, kind of in your face. Not so much when we were kids, it kind of died off. You sort of, you pick up on it later. But, you know, another thing I'd like to point out, I mean, there were, we had, and the radio show finally went off the air not that long ago. But when we were kids on Sunday morning, we had uh, our friend Nick Fantasia, his dad, Big Nick. We had an Italian language radio show for three hours. Yeah. Thomas, West Virginia had an Italian language newspaper. I mean, wow. I could walk out the street from my grandparents. Thomas, West get, Virginia, by the way, is truly a wide spot. Yeah, it's, there's nothing. <laughs> but, I, mean, I could walk out the street, you know, to, to Josephine Marone's store to get something, and I could get yelled at in like four different languages. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was really, it was so, and I thought we were so exotic, you know? Like, I hated when you had to go stay at some other kid's house and spend the night because the food sucked. That's what we always say. I went to a friend's house one time. We moved to an Irish town from our little enclave in Brooklyn. And all my friends were these little Irish kids. And uh, we were all very nice. My best friend was Lebanese because he was the closest thing I had to an Italian person in my town. And uh, But this one kid invited me over and his mom made us lunch. And she brought out saltines with um, cream cheese on them. And, <laughs> and I remember thinking like, is this a joke? Like, I don't, you know, I, 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 I was a kid, but I was almost like, you, is, is there a camera here? Like somebody's got to be kidding me, but yeah, it, it, I never that wanted could have been to really good with a sun-dried tomato on top. <laughs> the cream cheese just wanted something on top. Yeah. You could always bring the non-Italian to the next level. We could have fixed it. You're right. You did have the dry club. But there's so many weird things. I mean, guys, I never saw a round pizza in person till I was seven years old. I never <laughs> saw one. Why? It's because there are rectangles here. Really? I mean, not now. Now you've got Donald. Do you know why they're rectangles? I'll tell you why. <laughs> go back, go. Because, they put it, because my grandmother put, put it them in a shirt box. box. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you how it evolved that way. In the south of Italy, you made bread once a week or once every two weeks. And bread was stale most of the week. So fresh bread every day was another huge thing about America. 
and they would use sourdough starter. So with the sourdough starter, your bread lasted a little bit more than it would. But making bread was a whole day affair. So if they, every town, they'd have a day. We make bread on Monday. We make bread on Friday. We make bread on Tuesday. And some of the women in the family got together. They would start the whole process. And since bread was the whole, you had to, number one, you had to spend a lot of fuel. You had to burn twigs and stuff to get the fire going. The leftover dough at the end of bread making day, they would put on steel trays that the blacksmith would make. So the blacksmith would make these square steel trays and they would put some of the bread dough on that, put a little bit of tomato sauce on top, or even before that, a little bit of olive oil with some broken anchovies on top. And they would stick that in the oven. And that's what they fed the family on the night of bread making day because they were exhausted from making bread all day. That's where fried dough comes from. From the parts of the country that have fried dough as a dessert, you would take some of the bread dough, the mother would take it, roll it out into a little, red, uh, little round um, disc, and they would fry that. Some places they would put a little sugar, put a little bit of honey, put a little bit of salt, even put a little bit of tomato sauce on it. So that's why now Naples, the pizza tradition was not based on bread. In Naples, the pizza tradition was based on the fact that it was an urban center, and people bought fast food. Because remember, Naples and Pompeii, when the Caesars were still in Rome, they had a fast food tradition. Yeah. New York has a round pizza tradition because it comes from the Naples fast food tradition. Places like Sicily or places like West Virginia, they have the square tradition. That comes from leftover bread dough when mom is exhausted. So let me make this to feed the family. Let me ask you guys a question. One of the things you bring up, we're talking about food now. First of all, I was fascinated to hear some of the recipes that are introduced by the main character, Tony. I'm assuming those were your family recipes that you're sharing out. Most of them. And some I took from friends. Like I learned like the, the bacala balls that we deep fry. I learned from my friends who were Sicilian and I love them. But my wife, Shannon, who wrote the cookbook, she styled all the food for the film, cooked all the food. And she has like, she's like a scientist with this. She's a historian and a foodie. In fact, we make these, we just made a little cooking show because we couldn't have the seven fishes festival. I wish she was here. Cause she'd be a lot smarter at answering. These <laughs> we'll put her and Pat together. We'll do like a four yeah. part series. Oh, oh, we're Pat's coming down. That's just, happening. I would love that. You don't have to ask me twice. Cause That's John happening. and I have wanted to do an on the road yeah. special and nothing would make me happier than to go to Galabrese, West Virginia. That's on could. the bucket list. 100%. That in Sugarland, Texas to see the Sicilian. We're doing this. When is the festival normal? I mean, obviously this year. The second Saturday in December. It would have normally been this Saturday. Well, let me tell you, we, we do an online YouTube series, I was saying earlier, Greetings from Italian America. And that's our goal is to see these things. So if you invite us, we'll be down next year with bells on, God's bears. Oh, that, that's happening. And, you know, we've been, and the thing about the festival is we won't let it get too big. I mean, maximum you get maybe 12,000 people. Um, it's, I know. <laughs> but but the Titan Festival in Clarksburg is like a hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah so. we do like twelve thousand. Oh, I don't know me. A hundred thousand? Yeah, it's huge. It's incredible. But that's the, Labor Day weekend. But but ours is more um it's a, it's like a home street festival. Yeah, but like we've been everywhere from like Garden and Gun magazine profile, and we were the one of the top twenty winter destinations of the South and that's wow. or festivals or whatever you call it. You know, I mean it's so it's done really, really well. But it's just it's incredibly intimate and like we do a cooking school every year that is just I almost cussed I won't cuss but <laughs> just call it a dumpster fire it is so much fun and and honestly I, I like I'm gonna say it a million times it's it's the it's the togetherness and yeah. also and I really I mean this you know my great-grandparents sacrificed a lot under 
I don't know what all they, I don't know when you, you took my 12, 14 year old great grandmother who I adored, put her on a boat with her name pinned on a piece of paper by herself. God knows. Like I had some agent tell me, go, well, don't try to say that your film's really a pro-immigrant immigrant movie. And I'm like, man, are you a thick headed person? How can't you see it? What this is? Uh, you know, I think for us not to acknowledge and remember, not, it's not even so much about nostalgia. I mean, it's just like, it seems to me evil if we yeah. don't constantly commemorate their sacrifices that enable an idiot like me to be a movie director. Yeah, I agree with you completely. <laughs> I do. I, I, and I think you're right. I think it's not nostalgia. I think it's, um, it's dutiful almost. It's, it's, there's a, there's a yeah. humility to it and a grounding to it. It's an and, obligation. Well, and the film, like the film like this week is getting a big push in the UK, right? So it's been, last year it was, but it's Sky TV and all this stuff. It's doing a big push with it. And when it came out last year, the funny part about this movie is it, it was reviewed very well and not by, you know, my mom or somebody like, you know, it's between the New York Times, the LA Times, Hollywood Reporter, and all the pieces that, that you know, was reviewed well. It's a, it, it's an award winner. It won at a festival, the Heartland Festival, which is an Academy acclaim. And we beat the movie Just Mercy, right? That Michael B. Jordan movie that yeah. was the Audience Choice Award. Wow. Uh, played at the Academy of uh, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which is a hard crowd. And it's not a bunch of Italians sitting in it. It's, it's played, you know, we played a lot of different places. And the response was a commonality. And I think, John, you said it. I think that people like, you know, it's a simple movie. It's this, this isn't, when you really watch a movie, it's, it's written too much in the tagline. It is a slice of life. You don't know what happens to these people on December 28th. You don't know what they do for livings. You don't know. It's just really like a snapshot. And I think people relate to it because everybody has kooky families. I don't, I mean, I, I'm not speaking for you guys, but everybody's got some nut job in their family and, and, and everybody can relate to that and drama. And, and, and there's always that bit of your younger person in particular, you're bringing somebody home to meet family and that awkwardness and relatability and Christmas is a romantic time. So I, we've found, I, I believe that is that, that, that it was, it was well received on that level of people. Cause I think they could, you know, you don't have to be Italian to love this movie. I mean, you can, you know, you can relate to it. And I think food could do that for people. Well, I appreciated the best reviews and I, you know, I really wanted a good review in the LA times and we got a really, really good review in the LA times, which is not easy to do. But what I loved in that and a, and a couple of other of the bigger kind of trade reviews were people acknowledging the specificity of the storytelling. And by the way, at the same time, there were there were some critics, I think, who went right over their heads. They liked the movie, but they're thinking it's a Hallmark movie. I mean, you know, I made a movie that every time somebody starts to get romantic, somebody throws up. I mean, because that to me is the <laughs> reality of Christmas, you know, yeah. is like, it's not. We kill ourselves in this pursuit of this perfect ideal instead of just, you know, and uh, you know, like in the movie, you, you don't know what's going to happen. You're going out. You don't have a cell phone. You don't know if you're going to meet the girl of your dreams. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. But I wanted to be super, super specific. I mean, I, that was my goal and was to slow down. And, you know, it, I deliberately, I, I, it just amazes me when people say things like it's low stakes or it's, uh, what else did they'll say? You know, and it's, it's, not, it's not plot heavy. And it's like, well, why has, I, I wanted to make a movie where you pulled up in the kitchen and start stuffing calamari. Yeah. That's what I want you to do. And if that doesn't work for you, that's awesome. Go, go watch what you want to watch. 
You sound like Pat. Pat says that when people criticize the show, he goes, look, we're on here. You know, here's how, here's our version of Italian America. And if you don't like it, there's another podcast out there, you know? Yeah. No, you, you hit the nail on the head because we did get a couple that where people thought, I thought it was going to be this kind. And this is no. from my favorite consumers. ones are when they go, it's vulgar. No good Italian would speak like this. And I'm like, oh, you have to say something. Our people love to beat up on our own people. Yeah. <laughs> that is our number one. Uh, that's why with the podcast, I mean, I'm, I'm in heavily Italian New Jersey and the star ledger, because in New Jersey, you can have like newspaper articles on how's the right way to present, pronounce Brazuth. Brazuth <laughs> is Neapolitan. Nabudan is a language. And that's how you say Nabudan Brazuth. Some woman, after she, a, a true Italian, had to hang out all her 18 PhDs and she was a professor here and gave how it really should be prosciutto. Why did she have to say that? Because she had to tell the whole world she had 18 PhDs in linguistics. She yeah. didn't really care how anybody put it. And we all have to, as a culture, we just love to poo-poo. That's the number one compliment. Jealousy is the fuel of our people. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. Well, I could tell you there is something to be said about the responsibility that comes to doing something about your own people. You know, I mean, that, like you say, even the book signings, I know we feel it when we do the show. Uh, the last thing I kind of want to touch on is, did you guys feel that sense of responsibility from the undertaking? Well, absolutely. And I think part of it is, and, it, and it's hurtful at times um, from an identity perspective. When, you know, your mother marries someone that's not Italian and all of a sudden, and you heavily identify as Italian and you realize that some of your dad's people maybe think like, you know, what did he do? And, but then from the Italian side, it's like in your, your the, and again, these, these things are getting sort of frayed and you kind of wonder where do you fit? And I never want people to think I'm a fraud. I never want people to think I'm some sort of an, um, you know, expert. And I certainly don't want them to think I'm Tony because I had no concept of monogamy at 21 years old. <laughs> uh, this was, this is not me. I was more like juke, but low <laughs> mix. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, of course, and, I, and, and you worry you don't want to hurt. I mean, my one uncle is still alive. He's 93 years old, and I was absolutely terrified, Yeah, you know, because he was a black shirt, white tie kind of guy. I don't know how else to put it, you know. Yeah. I mean, when he, I'll go ahead and say it, when he came in on Christmas Eve, he did put a pistol up in the holster up on top of the fridge. I don't yeah. know what he was doing. Probably <laughs> nothing. Doesn't matter what he was doing. But he was, you know, and he always knew he, he was always right about betting, like always. And he would take <laughs> money playing cards as kids. But I was terrified. What was he going to think? Yeah. And, you know, he finally told me he loved me, you know, uh, yeah. and put his arms around me. He was so thrilled. But you do, you worried. And, you know, you, of course, I was worried that every ex-girlfriend in the world is going to think, was that supposed to be me? And I'm like, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. fiction is fiction. Yeah. I mean, it's just a movie. Well, it's a great one, and I highly encourage everybody to go out and watch it. Um, or to support the tribe, buy the book, go see the movie. Don't yeah. buy one book, buy ten books. You need That's stock right. stuffers, buy one of each, buy one for all your family, all your relatives. Go out and support the efforts of Italian-Americans to preserve and propagate the culture. Amen, Pat. And gentlemen, we, we will see you next year with God Spares, 12,000 other Italian-Americans. We're going to bring a tribe. We'll have a bus trip. Yeah, we'll bring the oh, Jersey, New York great. contingent. Absolutely. That'll be great. Hey, and guys, uh, just so you know, if, if just holler at us if you need any pictures or anything you need for behind the scenes. And I'll mention to you, too, is there's a, if you do come across the DVD, the Blu-ray, there's some really good 
there's a there's I think we did a pretty nice little documentary behind the scenes thing. It's just kind of cool. Oh, cool. And it contextualizes it. But if we can get you anything that you want for the site, just holler. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna be in touch because we are now dedicated to coming down there next December. So I'm looking forward awesome. to it. Awesome. Right. Well, this has been a Thanks, fun Jeff. one. Thanks, everyone. Thank, Thank you, guys. Take care, Pat. We'll right. see you guys. One of the have a Merry Christmas. One of Absolutely. And for all of you out there who have not seen the movie, go out and watch it. I promise you it will bring you and yours a very, very Buon Natale this holiday season. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Let the games begin. Mediaset Italia has the most exciting, high-octane, full-drama game shows and reality TV this fall. With new seasons of Celebrities Stuck Together 24-7 on Grande Fratello Vip. Testing your smarts on Chi Vuole Essere Milionario with Jerry Scotti. And the biggest talents in Italy discovered with Tu Si Che Vales. Plus, more trivia tests on Caduta Libera and important stories and exclusive interviews with live Nonella D'Urso. DirecTV has the Italian TV you love. Get Mediaset Italia a la carte for $10 a month plus taxes or the Italian Direct Package for $20 a month plus taxes. Visit directtv.com forward slash Mediaset or call 1-877-912-912. 2702 to learn more and subscribe. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. For new customers, equipment lease, activation, early termination, equipment non-return, and other charges and restrictions apply. Call 1-877-912-2702 or visit att.com for full details.